Thank you, Ben. Uh, good morning, everybody. Awesome. Uh, let's get this out of our system now. Uh, go 49ers. All right. Woo. Okay, that's all we're going to do for the morning. All right. Um, but it's exciting. It's exciting. But there, there are more games to go. So let's save our inner energy. But um, yeah, good morning, everyone, once again. It's, uh, I guess, yeah, we're two weeks into the new year now, like Ben was saying earlier. I don't know how, count, how to count, so it helps that he counted for me. Uh, but I hope that you're doing well in keeping your resolutions and are sticking to your Bible reading plans. I want to say that I'm not trying to guilt you into, into a Bible reading plan. It's just if you are, I'm glad that you're sticking to it. Uh, but I want to ask, how many of you are familiar with The Price is Right? Yeah? Okay. So, okay. Bob Barker, Drew Carey. Bob Barker? <laughs> Drew Carey? Uh, nah. <laughs> it's like, they're both good. They're both good. Right? Uh, Drew Carey had his time with uh, Whose Line Is It Anyway? That was a good show. Um, it was good, clean, fun most of the time. Um, <laughs> but uh, anyway, I mean, if you've never seen this game show, it's a game show, if you don't know, four people from the audience are randomly selected to go run up onto the stage and say, oh, hey, Bob, I want to play this game with you uh, to win like this huge prize. So basically, each contestant guesses how much a certain thing costs, say like a, say like a piano or a, a potted plant, you know, something random. And then uh, whoever's closest moves on and they're, they're rounds until finally someone wins a car, right? Or someone wins a pair of jet skis. And I mean, everyone is so excited in the audience because they all have this supposedly like equal chance of, of getting called up to win and play. And that's why that show has been going on since the 70s, right? And it's a great show. Um, so if you're ever watching daytime television, check it out. Um, but, yeah, but, I mean, it's amazing, right? I mean, if you've ever seen the show, even just once, you know how excited people get when they run up there, right? They're so excited just to win something, right? It could, it could even just be, like, new furniture, and they, they get so excited. Which, I mean, new furniture is nice, don't get me wrong. Um, but I, I think as Christians, we have something much more amazing, Amen. Something much more, much, much more valuable, something of rich, eternal worth that we get to celebrate. And that's a wonderful relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And this isn't a prize that we have to compete for, like on a game show. We don't push each other out of the way or try to guess closest to uh, however much we think our salvation is worth. No, we don't play that. Uh, but it's something given to us freely. Not that the gift itself was not costly, because it was, but it, that it was offered to us out of the mercy of our Heavenly Father. And I say all this because it's been a difficult season or even a few seasons of life for many of us here in our church family. Physical or mental suffering, chronic pains, difficulty in navigating relationships, fractured marriages, the loss of dear loved ones. And that's, why, that's, that's the reason why we as Salem have decided to go through the letter of 1 Peter to start off 2020 together. Because the Christians that Peter wrote to suffer, they were hurting, they were broken, they were living amidst the brokenness that comes alongside with our world just like we are today. So if you have ever been hurt, if you've ever been broken, or if you are hurting and are broken as we speak, my prayer and my hope is that God's word could and would speak to you just as much as it did to our first century brothers and sisters in Christ. 
before we get started, let's get into the context of 1 Peter for a bit, its background, author, and audience. So we're going we're gonna to spend a few weeks in here, so let's get comfortable, right? Uh, we want to have any piece of information that will better help us to understand what this letter meant to the first century believers, who were the original audience, the original recipients, in order to help us better grasp its timeless truths for us today. So if you have your Bibles, please open with me to 1 Peter 1-2. to If you're not there already, and I'll start us off reading there. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So here uh, we see, we can see Peter wrote this letter very clearly. Peter, also known as Simon Peter, he was a disciple of Jesus. One of the original 12, in fact, he was a fisherman called by Jesus himself to follow him. He was the leader of the apostles, and he was the first to actually understand that Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, He was the one who tried to walk on water. He was the one who denied Jesus. Then he was later restored, and he was the one who became the leader of the new church formed at Pentecost. That's the Peter that we're seeing here. That's the one who's writing this letter So it's this guy, this Peter, he's writing to believers who are speckled across Asia Minor around 54 to 68 AD. Uh, And that's where we get Pontus, I mean, all those countries, I don't want to try and say them again. But most of these places are two to 300 miles away from Jerusalem. And these places are even more than twice that that distance from Rome, where uh, we think that Peter is writing from. And we know that they're believers because Peter addresses them as the elect, those who have been sanctified of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus by his blood. Peter's address then is both a description of the audience, but also a theological explanation of how they became that Christian audience. The term elect then is being used to encourage the church and remind the people of God's great love in that God's elected, or in that God elected them. God chose them to be his people. It means to be a recipient of God's grace. That's what elect means, to be a recipient of God's grace by God's initiative, not our own. They didn't do anything to get that. God gave it to them. And then we see to be exiles of the dispersion. That's to be Christian who doesn't call this world home. So yes, diaspora um, was a term frequently used for Jewish Christians, and that could say that they were dispersed from their original homeland of Jerusalem. But at the same time, this term can also apply to Gentile and Jewish Christians, like all believers, to say that this world was not their home. Because their only home is not this place, but it's heaven. In verse 2, the power of God's Election, I mean, the strength of it is put further on display. God, in his foreknowledge, knew that these people would be saved, and they are sanctified by the Spirit when first saved. That's one aspect of sanctification. And second, sanctified in the hard work of growing in holiness throughout life by the Spirit. All this for the purpose of obeying Jesus as they are cleansed by Jesus' sacrificially sprinkled blood. And Peter caps us off, all with the blessing, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Not just that, may grace and peace be to you, but that it be multiplied to you. Generously, over the top, overflowing. 
Some churches, actually a lot of churches, spend a whole sermon just on these first two verses. We don't have the time for that today. Uh, but what, we, what these two verses teach us is they, they really set the ground for the rest of our sermon series together, our time together in this letter, in this series. We learn who Peter is. We learn who he's writing to. We learn for what purpose, for obedience to Jesus. And that sets the stage for not just the te- next 10 verses, but again, the rest of the letter, the rest of our series. And that's where we find our key idea this morning, if you're following along here. Insert, only Jesus offers hope when there is none. Only Jesus offers hope when it doesn't seem like there is any hope at all. Peter doesn't just write these first two verses without a rhyme or reason. He's laying the foundation for the rest of the letter before offering hope and how it comes into their lives, it enters into their lives practically. Peter wants to first teach and remind them, remind us where our hope is found, in whom our hope is found. Which brings us to our first point this morning. Only Jesus offers a living hope and an unbreakable inheritance. Two things, right? Only Jesus offers, one, a living hope, two, an unbreakable inheritance. We see that verses three to five. Hope found in anything else other than Jesus is temporary. So please read with me verses three to five. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter continues building the foundation of our hope before pointing to it. That's why he blesses God first at the top of verse three because it's by God's immense mercy that we are born again. And before we move on, I think it's really important that we understand this concept of mercy. Let's define it simply. Uh, Mercy is holding back punishment we deserve. Mercy is holding back punishment we deserve. This is important because when we talk about God, we tend to think about him in terms of his love or in terms of his grace, rightly so. And when we contrast mercy with grace, so we see that grace is being given something that we don't deserve. So in God's grace, he grants us forgiveness. And in God's mercy, he withholds the punishment for our sins by placing them on Jesus. So really, you could say that mercy and grace are two sides of the same coin. But what Peter wants us to see is that there is a specific type of hope that comes from God's mercy. If God has already withheld our judgment, then of course we already have a great living hope through Jesus' resurrection from that judgment, from that death. And that death belonged to us originally in the first place. (coughs) So it's not that we as believers live full of hope each day, though we can, but we have a clear and fixed hope. A hope that says to us that Jesus has died for us and this hope extends through our futures, through to our futures in heaven as we see in verse four. So, church, as a result of God's mercy, we also gain the hope of our inheritance in heaven. Our inheritance is imperishable. So one, imperishable, that's how Peter describes it. It transcends the temporary nature of our lives never to be destroyed, undefiled, without 
compromise or stained by sin, unfading in that it will never wither or fade away. What he's saying is that we can never lose it because it will never decay. And this valuable treasure, this truly treasure is being guarded by God's power. And all we need to attain it is to have faith. It's, it sounds simple. But faith, as we all well know, it can be easily shaken. Faltering even just by the anxiety that tomorrow brings to us. But the beautiful truth is that however weak we are, it doesn't matter. Our salvation is never uncertain because God himself is the one who is sustaining it. We don't have to do anything to sustain it. God is the one who's sustaining it. Our faith is stabilized by the fact that God is the one who guarantees it. And it's waiting to be revealed in the future, that inheritance. So what this teaches us then, this doctrine teaches us then, is that it only serves to build up and sustain our hope. So before we move on on to how that hope empowers us to live in our second point, it's it's vital that we really camp out here and seek to understand the the foundation in the first place, the foundation of our hope. That's why we took so much time talking about mercy just a moment ago that it was out of God's great mercy that he caused us to be born again. That though we were once dead in the tracks of our sins and though we still continue to struggle with sin every day, salvation was mercifully extended to us through the greatest hope, through the living hope that is the person of Jesus. By his resurrection from death, not the death that we deserve, our death. So as those now saved by God's great mercy, we no longer choose to live our lives for ourselves that leads us to death, but we have the opportunity to live for a God who has given us the hope to live through any and every circumstance that life could ever throw our way. This is the gospel, family. This is the gospel. This is the new hope we have in eternal inheritance. That even in our most desperate state, when we were separated from God, we knew him personally. Before before we knew God personally, God gave us hope. When we could never hope to earn any hope on our own. It's all by God's great mercy. It's all by his God, God's great mercy. In these first five verses, Peter has paved the way for our understanding of how God's hope actually works in our lives practically. Hope works because Jesus worked for us. So let's see now how that hope and inheritance begin to take shape in everyday life, even in the worst of times. And we see that in our second point, only Jesus helps us to rejoice in trials. Only Jesus helps us to rejoice in trials. There is no other force in this world that allows us to face trials head on like Jesus and with joy at that. And if any of you are like me, those words sound crazy at first. How can someone actually find joy in suffering? Are we as Christians called to simply put on a happy face and smile through our sorrows? Well, let's, let's find out the answer in the next few verses. Verses six to nine. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. After establishing Jesus as the foundation of our faith and hope, Peter then moves on to teach us how our hope in Christ allows us to face our our hardships head on. But what still hangs me up are those first few words in verse six, in this he rejoiced. And the rejoicing Peter's talking about doesn't just happen during any old regular time of life, not an ordinary time or a joyful season of life like many of us would first think. I, I mean, that's what I would first think. But during times we're grieved by trials, he says. In trials, we're supposed to rejoice. How does that make any sense, Peter? What are, what are you saying? Are you taking crazy pills? These are valid questions to ask. You know, John Calvin, French theologian and, and reformer, a, a huge uh, forefather of our faith today, admitted as much when he said it like this, but it seems somewhat inconsistent when he says that the faithful who exulted with joy were at the same time sorrowful, for these are contrary to feelings. So to agree with Calvin, it does sound contrary. Not, not my words, his words, right? But what Peter's getting at isn't a cheap joy where we put on a happy face to give the illusion to others that everything is okay. But it's a spiritual joy that he has the power to overcome, not just the bitterness we experience from evil, but sorrow too. This doesn't mean that we suddenly stop experiencing suffering and sorrows, not at all. But it does mean that your suffering does have a place and a purpose. And though Peter does, does give a little consolation to, to us in saying that these things only take place for a little while, it doesn't, any, it doesn't lessen it any, anymore or it doesn't lighten them in the moment. But there is a purpose. And we find that purpose in verse seven, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ. Basically, Peter is saying that the purpose of our trials is to test our faith. But I think that answer uh, would leave many of us wanting more. Uh, Like, really, Peter, that's all you got? That's all you got to say? You're going to test my faith? Okay. Um, So before I go any further, right now, I'd just like to ask a brief survey of of everyone here. Uh, How many of you have ever worked with metal before? Not Not the music genre. But, but like the actual, like this. There's one, two, yeah. These are, are all humans greater than I. Uh, I wish I could say I was a uh, strong metal worker. My, uh, my closest thing I could say is I once stepped on a long metal nail. And uh, yeah, I don't ever want to do that again. Um, but uh, if you can work in metal, I, I am impressed. Yeah. Um, But anyway, so imagine for a moment you are a metal worker, even those who have never worked in metal. Um, You've listened to Bruce Springsteen your whole life. Or uh, you wear denim every day. Uh, Not to say that these people here do that. Um, Or that you were born and raised in South Detroit, right? Metal there, right? And you took the midnight train going anywhere. (laughs) I had to sneak that in there. I'm glad you're paying attention. So are we all there in our imaginations? 
Good, good. I'm glad you, you, uh, have, you can imagine that. So now imagine you have this raw piece of like iron or metal deposit with you in front of you that you, I don't know, somehow got out of the ground or, or something that you, you dug up yourself. Um, so I'm just going to throw out random numbers. I have no professional expertise on this subject. Okay, foreclosure. All right, just giving you guys a heads up. Um, so say you could sell it, this piece of metal, this hunk of metal for five bucks. Sure, you could sell it as is and get five bucks. Or if you melted it down into a horseshoe and shaped it, or shaped it into something else, you could get 10 bucks. You see where I'm going here? But if you melted down that iron and refined it over and over again to make a whole load of stainless steel sewing needles, maybe you could get 100 bucks. Or if you were extra, extra zealous and tried super hard, uh, and I'm sure with like 10-year apprenticeship somewhere, somehow, some way, and decided to make parts for a Rolex, that would be worth thousands of dollars. Am I right? Uh, a Rolex is a fancy watch that I'll never own. Okay. <laughs> but all that to say is as your faith is tested, the stronger and more valuable it becomes. As your faith is tested, the stronger and more valuable it becomes. Like gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, your faith has the opportunity to become more and more refined as you face more and more trials. In fact, the value of your, of your faith as it's tested is even more than the most precious gold. It's more than the, the richest or through riches we can dig out of the ground. So while we put so much worth and value into gold, take a moment to consider then the worth and value of your faith after enduring trials. How much more precious is it to know a sister or brother in Christ has endured deep suffering in their lifetime and still chooses to glory and honor God because of Christ? Again, this does not mean it's easy by any stretch of the imagination. I don't think Peter is trying to make less of anyone's pain. But I do believe Peter is saying that it is possible to suffer and to still find your greatest hope and joy in Christ under any hardships. And though we haven't seen Jesus, how much more beautiful is it that you will still love him? And though you haven't seen Jesus, how much more amazing it is when you believe in him and rejoice with an inexpressible joy, ultimately finding salvation, a salvation hope for the future eternity with Christ, but also the salvation that saves us from the wretchedness of believing the lie that it's impossible to have a hope for living day to day right here and right now. Now, this is where the rubber meets the road brothers and sisters, where our faith hits real life. And while these applications might, these next uh, few applications might not speak specifically to you, I hope and pray that you would take the time to consider then how the hope of Christ impacts your life or impacts your brothers and sisters. Perhaps you're dealing with a physical type of suffering. You fight chronic pain every day, every week, every month. You're fighting an autoimmune disease or battle multiple ailments all at once. Just to share a little bit about myself, at, at 24 years old, a doctor told me that I have a 60-year-old's back. And now I have nothing but love and respect for my seasoned, more experienced in life brothers and sisters here. You're some of my favorite people here. Okay, I just want to get that out there. Um, I like you better than the other folks. 
I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But um, don't take that seriously. I love you all the same. Um, but when you're in your mid-20s, you don't expect to hear something like that. You don't expect to, to hear you're going to deal with this problem uh, for the rest of your life. And the first year that the back pain hit me, it was, it was the hardest year that I dealt with the pain. There were many times I simply crumpled to the floor, unable to physically support myself or get myself back up and, and had this sharp stabbing feeling in my lower back. Other times I could barely walk half a block down the street and, and again, fight that same pain. And on, and on worse days, on the days I was a little more concerned, I would start to lose feeling in my left leg and foot. I would force myself to go to my seminary classes back when this was happening because, one, I paid for it. I got to go, right? Uh, so I'm obligated to, but I was only able uh, to hang on by, by dropping a class and then by, so lightening my load and doing less. And then when I finally got to class after uh, taking ha- like half an hour to go like half a mile to class, um, I would have to support myself like this on my desk and to suspend my lower half and not have any pressure on like, my lower back area. So you can imagine how hard it is to take notes like that. It was a little, a little hard. Um, but for all the times I wish the pain would, would just disappear, even at times today, uh, it's crazy for me to say this, I know, but I wouldn't trade it away. Because it humbled and continues to humble me to the point of instilling in me that my greatest identity and my greatest hope is in Christ that my identity isn't in the sports I could play, my ability to take care of myself with things, even just sim- like simple thi- like things you take for granted, like taking a shower safely, or being the guy to call if you were moving somewhere. Each of those things pale in comparison to the identity and hope that we have as followers of Christ. Or consider if you're going through a difficult or dark season in your relationship with the one that you love. Dating doesn't seem to be an easy it doesn't seem to be as easy as it used to be. More and more arguments seem to come, be coming out of like the smallest, smallest of things. Uh, you've thought of or thrown the idea of divorce around when you fight. Or perhaps you've already lived through those difficult things. God never promises us that marriage will work out like a Disney movie, happily ever after. If anything, God's word shows us just how difficult marriage is by making many provisions for when it doesn't work out and remarriage and divorce. I mean, we talked about those things in our all-church meeting not too long ago. But what we do know is that Jesus makes the broken whole again. If God could repair our greatest disrepair in our relationship with him, then he can repair any earthly relationship. And I'm not saying that this is a guarantee that he'll heal that specific relationship. But if we could all learn to humble ourselves by deeper understanding the mercies and the grace that God has given us from himself first and our relationship with him first, then it is certainly possible for reconciliation and redemption between a believing couple. But like all good things, it'll take time and effort and humility. At the very least, God can and will heal our hearts. Or are you struggling with mental health? Your anxiety feels crippling at times. Your bouts with depression keep you locked up at home, never getting out. Do you have a, a battle with bipolar disorder or eating disorder or another form of behavioral or emotional disorder? Or are you fighting something else altogether? 
Number one, I just want to say, please continue to seek the professional help that you have in your healthcare, right, with the doctors that you have. Take the prescriptions that they're giving you. Seek out their professional help. But also, too, know that it's okay to not be okay. It's okay to not be okay. Everyone is just as broken and in need of God's grace as the next sinner saved by grace. And to say that you should be seen as lesser than or for anybody to treat you as lesser than and see you're lesser than, then that's flat out wrong and it's flat out unbiblical. If you are a person, you have an immeasurable value as someone made in God's image. And just like all believers, you have been saved and and redeemed into a relationship with God. And he always welcomes you with open arms. Or have you lost a loved one recently or in the past? Have you spent so many years with this close person in your life, whether a friend, a spouse, a family member, and now that they're not here, it feels as if a piece of you, if not a giant chunk of you, has gone with them. Have you lost someone young? Have you ever lost a child before you got to see them born? I don't stand up here now to pretend I understand, to know what your experience is or even understand what your grief is like. I can only speak from my own experiences and speak from others who have shared with me. But aside from the tightly lingering sense of loss, for me it comes in waves or when specific topics are brought up. Like, for example, two weeks after Chase went to the Lord, my, one of my best friends, um, I was leading praise singing for youth and college group at Lighthouse, the church I was at before this, uh, interning down south in, in SoCal. Uh, but when I began to sing about eternity, I began to have water fill up my eyes, and I'm pretty sure I scared all those college and high school students. I mean, we may never know why we lose the ones we love when we do or how we do. But even in the face of loss, we continue to have a God who loves us, extending his merciful hand to us to provide us with a hope that through Jesus, when a hope through Jesus when there is none else. A hope that saves us to our inheritance in heaven where we will one day see our lost brothers and sisters again for eternity. It's through the hope that God offers us through different trials that allows us to rejoice as we face them. Not, uh, again, it's not a putting a happy face and pretending everything's all right. No, that's not what we're called to do. It's not that kind of joy. That's a, it's a false joy, but it's a, a joy that is deep. It's sage-like. It's understanding that God has already given us Christ, so of course he's gonna continue to care for us and everything else, especially in the darkest of times. And this is a joy that will forever last and never leave us as we see in our last point. Only Jesus provides an everlasting hope. Only Jesus provides an everlasting hope. Our hope in Jesus will always last because our Jesus will always last. This is where we finally arrive. First, we learned how Jesus can only offer us a living hope an unbreakable inheritance. Remember those two things. Second, only Jesus helps us to rejoice in trials. How else could we rejoice in trials? And now thirdly, we see that Jesus provides an everlasting hope. I encourage you to read through those last three verses now as we discuss them. 10 to 12. So reading Peter's words here, uh, we see that 
the salvation Peter discusses is the same salvation that the prophets of the Old Testament searched for and prophesied. So this, this speaks to the same hope, right? That same hope that was in the Old Testament is the same hope spoken of in the New. So the re- repercussion, the consequence of the same Savior, which is the hope spoken of across all of Scripture, Old and New, is, is huge. That's a very big deal. I mean, I can't, I can't highlight it enough just how, how, how much we need to understand that, like how important it is that over thousands of years, millennia, different eras, people, like dynasties rising and falling. Jesus was God's answer for us all along. And we, we covered the Old Covenant in Deuteronomy, right? We, we came out of there not too long ago. And now we see how this, this promise, this hope that we have in Christ is experienced by the church in First Peter. Jesus was always God's plan to bless the nations, to bless us. And the prophets didn't do this for their own benefit. So these words, it was revealed to them that they were not serving, uh, that they were not, that they were serving not themselves, but you. Can you imagine that? The prophets were serving us. They were serving the church, following Christ's time for our benefit through preachers who shared the gospel by the Holy Spirit sent by heaven working in us. Even the angels would, would like nothing better than to see what God has in store for us. The fact that the same hope was prophesied and spoken of in the old covenant is the same hope that is actualized in the new speaks volumes. If God will keep his word over spans of time, there's no reason that, that, to believe that he'll stop from continuing to care for us now. So for all of our sufferings, church, all of our chronic pains, all of our broken relationships, all the mental health struggles and and grieving or whatever else, whatever kind of suffering that is in our lives, our living hope in Christ can never be taken away because it is an everlasting hope that only Jesus can offer. So with these parting words, I want to encourage you, church family, to seek out help if you need it, whether here and or the healthcare world. Uh, if, you, if you haven't gotten a chance to check it out already, there's one more call to care, Sunday school class next week, but that could be the perfect opportunity for you to learn how to better love and care for someone who's hurting or even help you care for yourself. Of course, the other pastors and myself are always available to lend a listening ear and to talk as needed if you want. We don't have to. We're always here for you. And if there is any sense of stigma about discussing any of these trials in our lives with one another, let's just get rid of all that now. Let's dispel that. Let's throw that out the door. We want to be a church family who truly loves one another and is willing to counsel counsel one another that as Romans 15 14 says that you yourselves are full of goodness filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another Paul is not saying that some of you can can like counsel one another he's saying that all of us can counsel one another and it doesn't mean that we have to have the right words but it does mean that we have to try and it does mean that we all have that hope that same hope shared with one another in Christ 
All of us possess this knowledge, this hope in the gospel. And it's out of that hope that we're able to instruct one another. So yes, it's scary, but just try. Just as I have received counseling and received a huge benefit from it, I pray that we would become a church that learns to counsel one another well in love. Because only Jesus offers us a hope when there is none. Only Jesus offers us hope when there is none. Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for the hope that you've given to us through Christ. Lord, so many of us here uh, inside these walls and outside of our our walls that are part of our church family are hurting today. There are any number of ailments, any number of sufferings. But Lord, you know them all. In fact, you know them better than we do. So God, please help us to lift them up to you, to offer all of the, the, the hurting, all the pain up to you. Lord, and wait eagerly, eagerly to see, wait and see what you're gonna do with it. God, and we may never get to see the answer to that. We may, in this lifetime on earth, we may never get to see what happens, but Lord, we know, God, that we don't have to put on a happy face. We don't have to put on a mask. But Lord, that we get to be honest with you and that we can be honest with one another. And as we do so, we as a church family get to more deeply experience the grace that you have in, have always had in store for us. That we could be a church that learns to hurt with one another, mourn with one another, weep with one another. Lord, for your glory. Lord, as we sing this next song, please help us to see the hope that we have in Jesus. That we would see that this, this, this burden, this calling that you've given us to, to lift up our crosses is actually a huge grace because you have given us yourself. Help us to see how your hope connects to our everyday lives, the peaks and the valleys, Lord, for your glory. And God, please be honored now as we offer back just a little bit of what you've given to us. Back to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.